0: This episode of Three PNR is featured on the UnX Network. Welcome to Three PNR. I'm your host Adam R, and with me on this episode is Douglas Wilson of Mufon. Douglas, how you doing, sir? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you for being on uh, again. We had a we had a mishap first first round. Um, excited to talk to you about a lot of the, uh, especially the equipment, which we'll get into. Uh, I guess let's open up. Let everyone know uh, who you are, where you got started, and what what put you on this path.
1: Okay. Well. Uh, I am currently the director of investigations for the Mutual UFO Network. I'm the director in charge of all investigations in the United States. I've been doing this job now for about uh, a little over a year. Prior to that, I was MUFON's state director for the Colorado chapter. I did that for about 12 years. Altogether, I've been in ufology for a about 46 years now, and I got started as a very young man uh, when I was on a ride-along with a Missouri State Highway Patrol officer, and we happened to have an encounter uh, fairly up close. It was within about a half mile at its closest, and lasted probably about 15 to 20 seconds. So that got me started, and I've been chasing UFOs ever since.
0: Excellent. For me, what got me started, Whitley uh, Whitley Stryber, his uh, book *Communion* as a kid, and uh, you know, as a kid, the curiosity's there. You know, it's a fascinating subject, and uh, I was watching uh, the movie *Communion* with my mom on the couch, and it was dark, and our dog jumped on the couch and scared the life out of me. Right? <laughs> so, but then that bit of fear only drives the curiosity, uh, you know, further. You know, you're more interested at this point. Now you got to know. Absolutely. So, for your uh, for the, the encounter you had, um, was it just like a, like a UFO that you saw?
1: Yes, we had. I was doing a ride along with him, and the county sheriff or deputy sheriff had contacted uh, over the radio asking if any other law enforcement in the area had had any reports of anything unusual in the sky, and no one had, but we were close enough to his location that we drove out and met him and a farmer who had seen a UFO while checking his crops for the day. And he described it very, uh, very clearly to us. And of course, at that point, the two law enforcement agents, they began using their radios to call around to try to find out if there were any things like uh, A helicopter in the area, possibly a crop dusting aircraft that had gone down, any kind of aircraft that might have been in need of assistance. And when it all came back as negative, there was not too much going on. It was a a very nice, clear, warm autumn evening. And so they decided that the farmer and the deputy would go one direction and we would go another, and we just kind of drive around and see if we could find any anything that might suggest what the stimulus for this sighting could have been and after we had been driving for probably 30 to 45 minutes uh, i noticed that the officer has had started to he let up off the accelerator you know he'd slow down a bit and he seemed to be preoccupied with his mirrors and then he'd speed up and slow down and After a few minutes, I asked, I said, what's going on? And he said, well, I don't know. There's something behind us. And I turned around in the seat and looking through the back window, I could see that off about a mile and maybe a mile and a half to the, uh, it would have been the southwest of us, there was a line of trees. Now, in rural areas, it's very common for large acreages of field, be bounded by trees and in this group of trees at the top it was starting to get dusk and we could see flickers of red light flashing to the tops of these distant trees and after a few seconds of watching this the top of the trees just got this bright red-orange glow and a few seconds later an oval a bright red-orange oval cleared the tops of the trees and was drifting more or less in our direction, not really drifting it, it was moving with a good speed. And it was coming relatively in our direction. We watched it for several seconds while it came from behind us, crossed the highway in front of us about a half to a quarter of a mile ahead and continued on its way until it disappeared over the tops of the trees to the northeast of our location. Well, during this whole time, we were just in awe. And like I said, it was probably maybe 20 to 30 seconds duration. We are both very much in awe of what we were seeing, and we didn't think to do anything. The instant that light disappeared over the trees, he grabbed his radio and he started trying to raise the deputy. The deputy responded that they were just about back to the location we had left them at. And the Highway Patrol officer told them, he said, I think we saw it, it's coming your way. And as they were speaking, I could hear the the farmer getting excited, and the deputy confirmed that was exactly what the farmer had seen before. Well, we didn't see it again that night, but immediately, uh, both law enforcement officers began radioing jurisdictions to the northeast of our location, letting them know that something was coming their way, and several of them radioed back and confirmed that they too saw it. So at least four other jurisdictions, besides the two represented where I was, had seen and verified the same UFO in the same evening. And once we had had time to consider all of the variables, the officer determined that He thought the most likely size was probably about 30 to 35 feet diameter, if it was circular. If not, the longest part that we could see was probably 30 to 35 feet, possibly as much as 15 feet thick at the center. And all we could see was just a bright red-orange glow. It almost looked like what people would describe as plasma. Is all we saw, but it was it was definitely uh, homogenized. It wasn't a gas or a mist. It was a apparently solid object.
0: Did you recall hearing any sounds?
1: There was no sound at all, and we were listening. There was no sound. There was uh, we couldn't see any disturbance underneath of it. I've witnessed other events where you could actually see a disturbance beneath the object in this case there was nothing it was it seemed to be just slipping through the atmosphere very beautifully
0: Fuel for the fire after that right i mean there's there's no turning back
1: (laughs) (laughs) once you see something that clearly uh and that relatively close you know that you have to just keep looking and the more you look in this uh Kind of a thing with ufology. The deeper you look, the more questions you find, and the fewer answers you think you know, and that just draws you along.
0: Yeah, I mean, my carry, curi- my my dig into this, and this is me bearing witness to nothing. I'm I'm deep in, it. and it, mostly because, again, as a kid, I was interested, in, and in my teens and twenties, I lose it. You know, because you, you're out doing what. And I never looked up as a kid and teen. I was always out doing shooting pool, hanging out with friends. Twenty seventeen rolls around. And the videos from the military released and I'm, I'm married to it again, right? Cause now I got to know the military scene is there putting it out there. It's real there. It's undeniable. I got to know what it is now. So I can imagine if I were you and saw that, forget it. I would be over-invested. I, I would probably, I don't, I'd probably have a firm put together by now specifically to look for that.
1: Well, if I had ever uh, done well enough financially, I probably would have, but to be honest with you, uh, getting into ufology was probably the worst thing that could have happened for me because it has consumed me to the point where I, I've got 11 years of college. My wife uh, frequently uh, bemoans the fact that, you know, 11 years of college, that's becoming a doctor. And I've got 11 years of college because I kept taking college courses to learn more so that I could understand more. But I never. Uh, I, I I never took that really good job because it would disrupt my ability to chase UFOs and to look for UFOs. So I've done myself a disservice with ufology. But I can honestly say that if I if I were to pass on tonight, I would I would feel that I have enjoyed learning and experiencing. I've got. I've got things in my background that virtually no one else has, and that's good enough for me. It's been a good run.
0: Yeah. Listen, if you, if I, on my dying day, if I have either a choice of wealth in the bank or, or absolute knowledge of this subject, I'm going to choose a knowledge every time. Absolutely. Because the wealth in the bank's not coming. Right. So, (laughs) and if, you know, and I speak to a lot of parallel, you know, paranormals and I you know, I'm going to be speaking to psychics. In my next realm, I will bring that knowledge with me, right? And who knows where it goes from there. So, That's yeah, it. in a heartbeat, I'll take that. Um, you know, I, t- I did tell you my theory, right, about, you know, the grays for me. They're, they're advanced robots with uh, some sort of biological material, uh, you know, as, as the exo, And I think we're under a long-term study. And, and in, a, in a nutshell, the mo- and, I, and to, to be fair, my opinion and theory evolves the more I speak with people because I hear a lot of MUFON people come with some really strong ideas. And it allows me to sit down and take it in and say, you know, this is, this is all very possible. I doubt nothing. I have no real position on anything, right? And, what, and I like to remain that way until I find something. And even then, what I might find might, who knows what door of, of questions that's going to open, right? Because then it's going to come, it's going to default to, well, why are they here? It's, it's not just good enough for us to see them. We got to know why. And even when they tell us why that might not be good enough either, because then we want to know the origin. So I could see how it's consuming. I've heard this a lot. Yeah.
1: It's very consuming. And like I say, no matter how much you think, you know, the more you dig into it, the less, uh, the more you realize you don't know, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It just, it always raises more questions than it answers. and, when it does answer something, it's never the answer that you are quite prepared for.
0: Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, I talked to, a you know, I do, again, I do a lot of off podcast interviews. Some of these were, again these are scientists. I want to verb their, their opinion. Uh, and they don't want the recognition, which respectfully I understand. And I've heard some fascinating ideas and some of the theories they, they run with hold a lot of water. Um, you know, again, with my theory can compare it to a scientist theory. It almost sounds similar. Um, you know, I recently had spoken with Mike Pennicello and Dan Spell again. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, Mike Pennicello approached me with the idea of they're, they're you know, they're almost similar, like they're made. And I've heard this from even uh, Chris DiPerno. The same thing. It, it seems to line up. It, 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 and the little, this, the little differences really don't matter that much because it still has the same kind of concept. And Mike Pennicello was saying, like, you know, that they almost – like their skin is almost plant-based. Like they would take – their energy and their oxygen and, and, and food, you know, via the skin, right? Which to me makes sense because I never look, I think is a great movie, but I don't think we're going to put flesh over metal, right? Because there's got to be a beating heart to get that circulation for that blood and that flesh to live. But exactly, plant, but plant life could live on anything. We've seen this, right? This is evident in our, our world today. We could see plants live on rocks, it's evident. So when he said that, mixed with my theory about them being advanced robots, and if they are being you know, made in, in an assembly line with, you know, for the purpose, whether it be their consciousness is uploaded and or they're cloned, that theory makes a lot of sense to me of why, again, they don't really need features like mouths and, and nose and ears because they're taking it right through the skin. And you have to wonder why they look that way. Someone asked me that recently, and I said, well, they had to base it on something. And if they came at one and if it's adequate and it works well, just like us, we make a robot. It works well. We're going to factor line it. Forget the, I'm not worried about the cosmetic. So, so long as it's doing its job.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know, that's one of the things, uh, I've, I've heard, and I've been asked, why should they look like us? Why do they have two arms, two legs, two eyes, and one head? And the simple explanation here is because it's functional, you know, uh, stereoscopic vision is something that is a must if you're going to be able to do anything with a great degree of accuracy. So it had to have two eyes. Uh, Those eyes need to be mounted on the front of something, of an appendage. That appendage for uh, usability, the appendage has to be flexible. So either you have a tentacle with eyes or you've got to have a neck. So There we have, we've got the head, we've got the stereoscopic eyes, we've got a neck. Uh, Fingers are essential. You're not going to be able to build something or operate something if you've got claws or paws or, or, you know, hooves. So we needed to have appendages with smaller appendages on the ends. One is almost never enough. We've seen that. So two seems to be optimal. You've got two arms. Well, it needs to be bipedal, because anything else takes up a lot of useless space. So two legs uh, work very well. And now you've got two arms, two legs, a torso, a head and a neck with two eyes. And so it just seems to be the functional model. Now, whether it's short and gray or tall and green or wide and yellow or whatever, You know, that basic format seems to be optimal.
0: Well, you know, I watch a lot of documentaries. And if you listen to these people that work on ideas at NASA, in their picture-perfect world of what they could put on Mars for a rover would be a bipedal robot with arms, multiple arms, in fact, um, one to stabilize, the other two to examine, and absolutely a stereoscopic set of eyes that can rotate 360 degrees. You know, so... You hear that from scientists talking about building robots just to examine a planet. Imagine a really advanced species. It's like, well, how do we examine them up close and personal? And they just, they perfected a better um, technology, you yeah. know? I mean, my belief system on their eyes, the, the gray eyes personally, um, is that they're scanners. They have multiple scanners and sensors and, and other things inside of them. It makes it perfect for that. Because if you hear a lot of the people I've spoken to uh, in regards to their experience the way they stare at them, and the, and the, the way they describe it, like they're looking over their body, looking down at them, it sounds like they're being scanned. You know what I mean? Like they're scanning something. And if I were to like say, let's say I had to survive in a jungle, I would want to set eyes like that because then you could you, you could absolutely depict everything you, in in different uh, camera modes. It could scan certain things. I mean, there's there's perfection there. If and that and that's just my theory. I don't know for certain, but or at least that's my wishful thinking. I should say right. So. Well, you
1: know, the eyes are a fascinating aspect, and they do seem to be, uh, when I say universal, I mean all cultures on Earth who report seeing uh, possible aliens, they always comment on the black staring eyes. And the most interesting theory that I've come across about the eyes was actually from a military individual who worked for a long time with Jesse Marcel Jr. And this gentleman stated that, and he he was like so many people in the field, they don't want to give up confidences, but they want to try to give you as much information as they can. And he didn't say that he knew it for a fact, but he told me that the good money, as he put it, was that these black staring eyes, he said that during an autopsy, that black layer comes away very easily and they've got eyes very similar to our own. He said that the black film, it's, it's a, he said that it's a film. Like a contact. Removed exactly, like oh. a contact lens. And what they are is it's a heads-up display. It's just like what our military uh, uses in their visors for uh, advanced aircraft, is they can see all of the data that's being sent to their brain or whatever that is within their cranium. The information can be sent there, and it can be literally, like you said, they can be constantly visually scanning it, but they can also see through it and be able to see us or their environment. He said the black seems to be because they, their pupils do not function like ours do to keep light in and adjust it. So these lenses are also essentially sunglasses.
0: Yeah. They're correct. That sounds.
1: Yeah. So I thought that was a very interesting idea about those eyes and, uh, the gentleman who expressed this idea to me to me was an extremely uh, reliable type of witness. I I can't say that I knew him well, but I have known him for quite a while. I've never known him to give me bad information. Right. So I think that uh, I think that seems like a very plausible explanation for the eyes.
0: I agree. Look, you know, I again, like I said earlier, my opinion evolves. When I started doing this, right, when I first got involved doing the podcast, I had my own set idea, right, about what it was that these were. And initially I thought, you know, well, this is a, a, a highly advanced machine, which it may be with the consciousness of it being uploaded to it. But then as I do the interviews, I learn more about it over the course of time. And then you look at what Elon Musk is going to do. He's, he's looking to put a chip in the brain to give you Bluetooth capability and communicate almost without words. So then I think about that. And then when I, and I hear what you're saying, it makes sense to me that if they are, again, and to the credit of Mike pennicello's idea, if these are being grown, then they're being grown biologically, but they have chips in, installed. And so yeah. they don't really have full function, right? It, it all makes sense. It makes prime sense in that sense, right? So my opinion has to evolve, especially when I learn more. At the end of the day, Doug, I don't plan to, to emerge from this as some sort of expert. I just want, I'm a student and I want to remain a student I, and I, I feel like I'm gonna, and no matter what it is I learn about anything, I'm going to learn something new. I always do. And I said this recently, and I, you know, I'll say it to you. Today's science is yesterday's theory. Yesterday's theory was a childhood's imagination fueled by curiosity. That's just how it works. And yep. if uh, if some civilization has thousands of years on us, forget it. It's got to live it. Who knows what they've done?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I've come to the conclusion after all these years, uh, I'm, I'm guessing I'm quite a bit older than you are. After all of these years, I no longer have opinions. You know, people say, well, what's your opinion? What do you, I no longer have an opinion. I have a pool of, of information that I've been immersed in. And I no longer even try to decide what do I think. I just, I I simply exist in this pool of information. And that pool is constantly changing. It's It's like a lake with a stream feeding it and then an overflow pipe letting some of the stuff out. And this information I'm floating around in is constantly changing. Not as much as it used to. For a while, it was changing like a flood. Now it's just, you know, a gentle eddy through the pool that keeps circulating. And so I just, you know, when I, when I have a conversation like this with people, I don't really have an opinion. Someone says something, you mentioned the eyes that brought information to the top. And so it flowed out. And that's the way I approach it. And I don't believe that there is such a thing as an expert in this field. No one is an expert in this field. I don't care how much they've studied or read or or seen. At best, we are students, like you've said, and a good student is always open and is always trying to learn more.
0: Yeah. It's hard to call yourself an expert, right? Because-
1: well, there's plenty of people out there that, that try. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, I, and I, I, I often wonder, like, look, not knocking. I'm going to start looking into the Bigfoot scenario. I have to. I, I'm going to be fair. I just have the hardest time, you know, digesting that because, again, I remember watching a documentary where they were searching for this small, either I think either you know, a chipmunk or a squirrel, whatever it was, and it was they thought it was going to go extinct, and this is in somewhere in, in Canada, and they found that in a month using drones and, and IR, and they found it. So you can't tell me this big ape is running around and you're not seeing it. It's not possible. If we, if it existed and we wanted, it, we'd find it. But then again, I have to make room for the idea that I don't know. And so, and when I hear people on, on documentaries, like, well, I'm the leading expert of this. I'm like, wow, what, what subject did you have to study? You know, like, right. So it's tough. And that's why what you can say is you're an expert in, in investigating it maybe, or you're a professional investigator. I get that. That makes sense because that's time invested. And I don't care who you are. If you spend a lot of time learning about baseball cards, I consider you to be a professional at that, right? Still not the expert because who is, you know? I don't know. It's yeah. it's a tough field. You know, for you, I enjoy talking to you because you have a really good perspective. You analyze and you had experience, which it, it both makes you unique and then open-minded because you can't walk into any scenario with filters on. You're going to miss something every Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Eventually, I'm going to get out there and do this documentary. You no, know, I'm going to be calling on you, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I look forward to it.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's going to be an exciting. I, I Thomas Wertman wants to get on board. Chris DiPerno wants on board. I'm going to do it because you know I want to I want to dig for answers. Uh, for you, we something we discussed last time. I, want to, I really want to get to, that, and this is going to be helpful moving forward for that subject. Material to use, uh, instruments, proper equipment. That's vital. Okay. Yep.
1: Absolutely. You know the the unfortunate thing about ufology is we don't have a set of criteria that some uh, think tank has been able to say this is what you've got to look for this is the reading, you know. So what we have to do as investigators of ufology, we have to think outside the box to a very large extent, but. You know, MUFON, and this is the thing that I have always been most impressed with MUFON, is MUFON says we are going to investigate every report that comes to us, and we're going to use scientific means of doing it. And that has always really appealed to me. The unfortunate thing is, as I say, there's no standard. There's no uh, baseline for UFOs. We've got a lot of interesting things going on right now. We've got something called Madar, which essentially it uses uh, your computer and it uses a small terminal that you plug into your computer. And what it's doing is it's measuring electromagnetic waves in the environment. And when one of these MADAR units gets a spike in the local electromagnetic field, it, it records you know, how much of a spike, how long was the spike for, and you can actually set the terminal so that when it spikes, it sets off an alarm. It, it alerts you physically that something is happening right now. What we're trying to do with that, the idea is if we can match up some of these electromagnetic spikes In the environment with reports of ufos in the local area then that will give us it'll start to help us find a baseline for electromagnetic energy or electromagnetic signature from a ufo well why do we even think that that's a thing the the good money as as one of my uh informants likes to say the good money is it seems to be that these things are powered electromagnetically. They're using electromagnetics, either as a guidance system, a propulsion, or both. So it would make sense that something with a an electromagnetic propulsion system, when it passes through the environment, it's going to cause such a spike. So that's one tool that we're using right now, trying to find out just, you know, if we can just get a baseline, if we can get 100 Madar hits, that match up to 100 UFO sightings, and we can measure those hits and get an idea for how far away that UFO was from the unit, that will go a long way towards mathematically calculating an idea of a baseline of what kind of a magnetic signature would a UFO have. Now, that sounds like gobbledygook to a lot of folks, but just imagine if we knew that a, and I'm just going to make up something here. Let's say that that 32 gigahertz was the the magic number. That would give us a baseline. We could set up equipment. We could calibrate it so that it only went off when that number of gigahertz or whatever happened to be found in the environment. Now we've got a way of saying, hey, quick, everybody, look up. There might be a UFO coming. And that's just one small thing. Uh, Other tools that we commonly use, and unfortunately, a lot of people sneer at things like uh, they watch TV and they see the ghost ghost hunters on TV, and they're carrying around this instrument that looks like something from Ghostbusters. Well, (laughs) there's a reason for that. It's called a trifield meter. And when the Ghostbuster movies were first created, they actually used modified Trifield meters in making the movie. And so now everybody thinks that if you've got a Trifield meter, oh, you're crazy, you're looking for ghosts. Well, a Trifield meter reads three different kinds of electromagnetic field. And that's what we're looking for when a MUFON investigator pulls out their Trifield meter We're trying to see, is there any latent change in the field in an area where the uh, UFO may have been. Now, again, we don't have a good baseline. That made our discussion I just brought up. That would go a long ways towards giving us a baseline so that when an investigator pulled out their trifield meter and turned it on, whatever the normal background reading should be for the area... If we get that thirty-five gigahertz or whatever the magic number is, that would suggest very strongly that there truly was a UFO in the area a short time prior. So we're always working on trying to come up with equipment that can be put to that scientific use of MUFON. Uh, we've got so much stuff right now. Infrared, Doug, is on that a MADAR.
0: How? So before we get off of it, the MADAR. Where could uh-huh. I be? Where could I be purchased? Well, actually,
1: if you uh, just enter "Madar" in your search browser, it should pull up uh, Fran Ridge. Uh, he's a he's a wonderful gentleman. Fran Ridge. He can be contacted at Newfork N U F O R C. That's another UFO organization, and they work with MUFON. So I'm not going to get in trouble for for right, uh, right. him a little bit. But uh, Fran Ridge sells these and they're not expensive. And in fact, sometimes he'll just give them away. You know, he'll check his log. And let's say you're out in the middle of nowhere where there's no Madar unit. Sometimes he'll just say, you know what, just take the darn thing, plug it in, because that way it, it builds the data that they're trying to collect. It gets us over a wider area. Um, but to purchase them, I don't think they're that expensive anyway. He sells them basically at cost. So these things are a great tool. Uh, we, we still don't, well, we don't yet, I should say, we don't yet know for sure how much it's going to uh, give us, but we've got some good minds that have come up with a good idea. And if we can just get enough data... You know, that's the thing. We are in a data wasteland with UFOs and people who insist that, oh, no, I can tell you this. and They're they're making stuff up. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, okay. it's it's social media and people wanting to be liked and people wanting attention. It's really it's it's making investigators lives a nightmare when they're presenting evidence for this for the sake of like getting some likes on YouTube. Right. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. for me, like I'd be interested in the Madar. I'm going to, I'm going to, as, as I start speaking to more and more of the uh, ufologists and, and researchers and investigators, I'm going to start bringing that up. You know what I mean? Cause it it's got to start somewhere. And, and this is how science is. If you don't have a group of people using it widely to, to get data, it's not going to come, you're not going to have a good piece of information, right? A- absolutely. And I'll tell you,
1: Madar is the best way. You know, if, if somebody listening to this podcast has thought to themselves, I really wish I could find a meaningful way to contribute to ufology. I got to tell you folks, the the best way, the two best ways, if you really want to contribute in a meaningful way, the two best things you can do, number one, find Fran Ridge, look up Madar on the internet, buy a Madar unit and install it in your house it's a one it's a it's a one-time price you know it's not like you have to keep paying through the nose for something it's there it can kind of I know families that it's their entertainment the how, how kids, easy is it to use oh it's as simple as inserting a us in a USB port
0: Don, you mean, simply
1: I'm, take it out of the box you set it up you put it on your computer you power it up and it's, and there it is. Doug, you know? i a
0: Madar, Doug. I need one. Oh, you got to. Right? <laughs> I need a if, if,
1: if everybody got a Madar unit, we would know. And some people say, ah, yeah, but, you know, you don't even know that there's anything to it. Okay, fine. If everybody in the U.S., if every household had a Madar unit, within a year, we would know. We would know yeah. either this isn't going to go anywhere, and so then we could start putting our attention in other directions or we would have such a great database that we'd have a baseline for when our investigators go out with uh, their Trifield meeting Now that data so, is
0: something they have to upload, right? To a, to a server?
1: Well, yeah. And I believe that what it does, uh, your computer creates a file and then I think it's monthly or maybe it's, anyway, uh, it comes with instructions. Every so often the the owner simply takes that file and shoots it off to Fran Ridge and it goes into their database. And then what Fran does is he compiles this data and then he sends it to MUFON. And there's several MUFON investigators who are connected with this. He sends that data. I shouldn't say several. There's a few MUFON investigators connected (laughs) with this. He sends us the data. We go through the database, the MUFON database, and we try to match up the time and the date of the Madar hit in that location with a possibility of uh, a UFO sighting reported at that time.
0: Right. You know, that's listen. I had Seth show uh, Showstack on the show um, and a long time ago there was, and I didn't, I was unaware of it. Uh, it was an internet question I gave to him said he had a program where you could map the stars with him from home. Now what made sounds like to me, is people participating as, as a whole? Like, listen to the world. If you want answers, this is the step. This is yeah. this is exactly the concept SETI was built upon, except yeah. we're doing it from our homes now. And I think it would make life really easy on the investigators. If, like, let's say, there's a report in the area and there's a ton of people in the area to have this 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 technology, it really will. Help. I think it's going to increase chances of us discovering and, and even finding a pattern, maybe to even predict the location of one. And that's the hope. That's what we're hoping Madar can do for us. I think that's a grand idea and I'm I'm getting one. So as soon as we're done with the podcast, I'm ordering it. So I need to have it.
1: I, I think it's something that if you get one and you set it up after a while, you're going to start referring to your Madar unit whenever you're doing a podcast, because it's going to become such a tool, even before we get enough data for it to really give us those those baselines that we're looking for, even before that, it's it's a talking point. You know, you can say, "Wow, you know, uh, in the last three weeks, I've logged sixteen spikes on my radar unit," and there's no reason why you can't go online and look for uh, possible UFO sightings in the area where you live. And try to match them up to that date and time.
0: Yeah, I mean to make you it know? easier for people, this is exactly yeah. what our military does with radars, right? Exactly. We, we, exactly. Phys- we physically saw something in this area, and then we check radar to con- you know to confirm it, and then we get eyes on it in field, right? We 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 scramble jets to get eyes on it. It's the same concept, except
1: exactly. you're doing
0: it at a grander level because you have more people at home doing it. I think it's a great idea, and I think I think it should become standard for ufology. I really do. And there's Absolutely. enough people that like this subject that if they really want to support uf- ufology and move on and, and other investigators, and this is the way to go. I agree with that. You know what I mean? That's, that should be a standard in my opinion.
1: How cool would it be to just be, you know, a normal everyday guy or gal interested in ufology to get a made our unit and set it up. And I don't know, let's just say two years into the future, We are able to give some really solid data about UFOs. How cool would it be to know? Hey, I contributed to that. Right. I, you know, I had that. I had a unit in my house and I listened to it beep and sing to me and everything. And every time it did, I just knew that something was happening. And now I can honestly say, look, I am a MADAR user. I contributed to that so much better than people who just you know throw money away at somebody who's you know i'm going to create the next mousetrap oh here take take thirty (laughs) dollars the snake
0: doctors of the world yeah (laughs) exactly
1: who cares about a new mousetrap but to say i contributed i contributed fundamentally to the science of ufology you know currently there is no science of ufology Someday there will be, and that's going yeah. to be a factor.
0: Look, it's coming fast. You know, I said this to you before, I think, right? You know, I, I read a lot about the ancient Greeks and the, and the inventions, and then I often wondered, why, why are we, what, where are these inventions now? So, and again, you know, and I'm not knocking religion, but the Romans came in with Catholicism, and that was considered, I, whatever it was, a blasphemy and witchcraft. So we're 2,000 years behind the ball on technology. But, yeah. with, but with this product, and here's where someone's going to feel really good you have it in your home you hear about a, a UFO sighting in and around your area and you see something on your machine react, you're now part of something. It's not It's not just a discovery. You're part of that. And you get to put Absolutely. that data in. And you again, like you said, you're contributing to a larger body of investigation to deliver answers everyone really wants. Yeah. I I agree. I, I completely agree with that. That's why I'm getting one. So we discussed last time about cameras, right? We got into that? Yep. And um, I, I did. I, I'm looking at film or film-loaded cameras. That's um, the best. Yeah, they're tough to find, believe it or not.
1: They are getting harder to find. They really are. And they're going up in price, more is the pity. But honestly, you know, for folks listening, if you are going to carry a camera around, you know, if you're on vacation and you decide, hey, I'm going to swing down through the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado on my way to Vegas, and I hope to grab a picture of a UFO. If that's what you're thinking, keep that stupid digital cell phone camera in your pocket or in your purse. Carry a film camera. If you snap a picture with a film camera, we can do all kinds of analysis. Digital, we are so restricted because remember, folks, digital means it's composed of little blocks. And those little blocks, when you blow them up, simply become big blocks. And you really can't tell a whole lot when you're looking at a mosaic of big blocks of shaded color. You can't get the kind of detail that we need from a good UFO photo. You know, one of the things I'm most frequently asked is, how is it in this day and age when everybody from little, little children to grandparents, everybody is carrying a camera with them? Why do we not get as good a photo now as we used to get in the 50s and 60s? And it's simply because now they're all being done by digital photos, which unfortunately, a digital photograph for scientific research is crap. And a digital photograph of anything at a great distance is crap. And it is so rare that you get the chance to photograph a UFO close up. It just doesn't happen every day. Right. So uh, the best thing that a person can do if they're truly interested in trying to capture a UFO photo, use a film camera.
0: Yeah, listen, that's for a lot of, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of people that that is their full intention is to get to snap something paranormal on there. Whether it be a goat I don't care if it's a ghost, UFO, Anything. Bigfoot, you want to, you know, get a picture of Lady Gaga, whatever it is you want to get. Film cameras are going to get you what what it is you're looking at, where digital, and I've I've read about it more, it's actually compensating for what should be there. Exactly. And that's a big issue because when something's compensating for an image, that means you could alter that image that much more easier, right?
1: Absolutely. And I
0: imagine with film, you could definitely see that there's tampering taking place if if indeed they're doing so.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, years ago, I used to spend a lot of time uh, surveilling Area 51 Now this is kind of a fun thing that anybody, if I can do this stuff, anybody can do it, Adam. So this is not, this isn't rocket science or magic, but here's a cool thing that we used to do. We would take, uh, we'd get two film cameras, we always use film cameras, we'd take two cameras, and we would set them up in such a way that they were on a, so uh, we took the aluminum pole handle that you use to paint your ceilings with, those those telescoping handles. Yeah. You take one of those, and then you take a second uh, telescoping handle that you can make a T out of. So you've got a long bar vertical with a long horizontal bar. And these bars need to be at least six or so feet up uh, end to end. Now, if you take that and you mount your film camera, one on each end of that T, you've got two cameras pointing in the same direction, so photographing the same thing, but there's a distance between them, so the angle of the shot is slightly different. Now, come on. Obviously, when you snap that pic, and you have to have a a trigger mechanism wired through so that you push a button and both cameras fire simultaneously. Now, of course, that's not a very far distance apart, so when you look at those images, they're going to appear identical, but because it's a film camera, the way we can use the information in each shot, we can actually get a lot of good data off of things like distance and size for that UFO. Now, that's a small a small thing. What my partner and I did a couple of times was we took two cameras and we used, I don't know how many feet... Of bell wire, just old fashioned bell wire. You can find it's, it's just copper wire in a, in a insulated case. And we ran this way out so that we had two cameras set up. And actually, what we did is we used our poles, stuck one in the desert, and then it got as far away as we could from that camera, put the other one in the desert and have the wires connected again to a trigger. Now you've got, and you know, three or 400 feet apart, two cameras snapping the same shot from that much of a a wide distance. Now you're really getting some crazy opportunity for size and scale and distance and speed of movement. If you're lucky enough to get several shots off while something happens to be passing through the field of view. So people need to think outside the box, get creative try to come up with new and unusual ways of, of catching photographs. And that just gives us that much more data that we can work with.
0: Yeah. You know, for me, this is bad to say, but I'm going to be in the next Travis Walden. I hate to say this because I see a UFO somewhere camera in hand. I'm running at it. Right. I, I promise you, I will drop the camera. You will have the evidence, but I'm going because <laughs> you know? I got, I have to know it's I'm, it sounds crazy saying that out loud, but it's not good enough for me to just like I said we were talking earlier on. It's not good enough. I got to know more. Let me on. I don't care what probe me. I don't care. I want to know. You know. I, I, I agree. I, just, I agree. It's, and we'll, I'll definitely do it in the name of science. Like I just I can't stand idle. Right. I, I, even as a kid, I think I don't know if I told this, but as a kid, we were in this this. Uh, there's a late – It's time. We used to sneak out of our houses to hang out and play manhunt. We were a bunch of bad kids. Um, there was a lake, and on the other side of the lake was a, the bank, and you know it was moonlit, and a bunch of my friends were like, "Oh, did you see those stick figure or, or shadow figures or whatever it was?" And I, I didn't see it. I ran that way because I had this as a kid. This is me. I think I'm 12. I ran over there to see something, and people are my friends are screaming like, "What are you doing?" That's a that's just that's my nature. I gotta know. I'm a weird person, you know. Like I'm the guy that dies in every movie right at the right at the yeah. beginning, so.
1: <laughs> I, I definitely, I definitely, uh, understand that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm right there with you, Adam. I've done the same
0: thing. Yeah. I'm a strange cat, man. Even in the house at night, if I hear something strange, just walking there, I'm like, all right, what is it? You know, <laughs> because it, I don't know, like for me, the most dangerous thing I'm going to encounter in my journey, especially in Florida, gators, snakes, um, you know, mosquitoes, <laughs> like all those are the dangers because they're everywhere. And absolutely. Everything else seems to be very elusive. Douglas, in your opinion, if uh, in, not, we'll say professional UFO researcher slash investigator, the, the MIDAR and the film camera, what would you say should be in their arsenal complete?
1: Well, uh, definitely want to have a film camera. You should definitely have a trifield meter. You'd be foolish not to have something to measure uh, radiation. Now, people think of Geiger counters. Fact is, we rarely count Geiger anymore. Uh, there are so many other ways of measuring radioactivity, but and, and you can buy some good ones online relatively inexpensively. So you're going to want to have something that measures radiation. And and I've got to I've got to give the disclaimer. Yes, it's true. It's very very rare that we run into a UFO scenario that does have increased radioactivity. But it is part of the, uh, it's just part of what we know to be true about many UFO incidents, that there is radioactivity associated with it. And because you can't see it, smell it, taste it, feel it, or hear it, that radiation is a very dangerous thing, and you really should check if you're pretty sure that a UFO landed somewhere or came very close to someplace, you need to make sure that you're going to be safe. You need to make sure the public is going to be safe. So uh, carry something to measure radioactivity. But here's, here's the thing, Adam. I don't care what they put in their kit. No matter what it is, for heaven's sakes, play with that thing. Use that thing. Understand how it works. The time to practice is not when you're standing in a in a field at 2 AM where you think a UFO just buzzed. That's not the time or place to be trying to figure out right. how to put batteries in your newest piece of equipment or how do you calibrate. Things must be calibrated. You know, I said before that we don't have baselines for UFOs. That means if you if you go out with any tool, I don't care if it's a, a Geiger counter Uh, a Trifield meter, what have you, when you buy that thing, carry it around with you. Walk around your own house, walk around your own neighborhood, and check the readings. That's going to give you an idea of what normal background reading should be in your area. If you take the kids for a Sunday drive, you know, five miles away to a park, take your equipment with you, take some readings there. Nothing's going on, but this gives you an idea of what the spread of background uh, radiation or EMF signal or whatever should be. Now you've got some idea as to what normal is. So that when you're on site and you pull that piece of equipment out of your go bag and you turn it on, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, ah, normal background radiation. But if it's other than that, you're going to already know, and so as you approach the the possible landing site or whatever, as you approach it, you're getting a reading and you're finding whether or not it's increasing as you approach it. Now, I'm not going to try to describe how you go about doing a radiological survey, but it's the same for most of these pieces of equipment that I talk about. You know, it's easy enough to find. Go online. Uh, find something or join MUFON. Our our manual tells you how to do a radiological survey. You know, you need to know this stuff before you get yourself in trouble. You know, folks who have never done any of this stuff before and they're like, ooh, I want that on my Christmas wish list. And ooh, now I'm going to go and investigate UFOs. If you don't know what you're using, how to use it and what the data means, you're just going to get yourself in trouble.
0: Yeah, you know it's it's like being a medical professional. If you want to rule out a certain sickness, you have to have experience and knowledge of those other sicknesses. to have a rule out phase. Yeah, and so you know, I had I had Dylan Jones on. Uh, he's a parapsychologist from from England, and that was one of his biggest pet peeves as far as the paranormal law groups. They have all this equipment, but they're not they don't fully comprehend everything it can or cannot do. Exactly. Um, and if something does default in the field and you don't know how to fix it, that's a problem, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, it, you know, one of the funniest things that I saw recently on TV, I don't know, uh, some of your listeners might have watched the TV show Hunt for the Skinwalker, right? And that was very popular uh, for the one season it was on. It cracked me up two or three times during that program. They would be walking around with their TriField meter or or a a Geiger counter, a radiation reading instrument, and they're walking around. They're walking at a pretty good clip, and they're swinging this thing back and forth <laughs> like they're winnowing wheat. It's like that is not how you use these things. You've got to you've got to move with slow, purposeful motion, and you've got to be checking the darn thing. Otherwise, you're getting such a sporadic reading, you don't know what you're seeing. Yeah. You know? So. Uh, that always comes to mind. And a few times I watch, my wife loves paranormal programs, and she watches all these ghost hunter uh, TV shows. And I'm constantly getting her angry with me because I'll say, that dummy doesn't even know how to use that Trifield meter. And she says, oh, why do you know about it? You only look for UFOs. And I say, <laughs> well, I know how to use that meter, and that ain't the way. So
0: yeah. Yeah, That that there's a couple I speak to, uh, Don and Laney of Spectre Waves. I've had them on the show a couple times now. Um, they have a YouTube channel. What I what I enjoy about their channel is there's not an episode where it's an hour long and you're waiting for that build up and the suspense is there. They just go and they make they discover, they find stuff, they deliver really short yeah. episodes. And when I speak to them, you can hear they're genuine about what they're looking at, what they're seeing, what they're encountering. And at never at any point did they say. Beyond all doubt and certainty, this is what they don't say. That they just take the data in and they they analyze it. Yeah, and they, and of course it's in. There, and they, look, everyone knows it's entertaining. Let's be honest, it's entertaining. But they could take something that's they're serious about and make it entertaining. But they don't have to go so like some of those shows you're discussing from earlier. I can't do it, man. I'm waiting there forty five minutes and they're like, all right, here it comes and here's the orb and then <laughs> next week, yeah. you know, it's like what? <laughs> what do you mean yeah. next week? So, and then the skinwalker thing, I don't know. That place, are there anomalies there? Sure. And I I was just talking about this recently. Uh, An advanced life form is is monitoring and watching us, right? In the hypothetical. And they have some of the most sophisticated equipment there is, period. If there are ghosts here and they're seeing it, of course they're interested. And what other places to go? Like the others, the Skinwalker, anywhere that's pretty barren or, you know, Well, that's where they're going to set up shop to learn about these anomalies. And so when I hear about Skidwalker, that's what that and many other places like it. What comes to mind is that is a perfect place for them to monitor whatever it is that they're seeing undisturbed by man for the most part. And but then again, who knows what gateways are open? And we don't even know. We can't even comprehend what might happen as a result of that. And that's the what if scenario outside of that, though. Some of those shows, I can't watch them, man. I, I wanted to. And they sound interesting. But I have a keen eye for when I could tell something's being sensationalized, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And the minute I see that, I'm done. My investment in that show is over. Uh and I've, I agree. I've been, I've been victim to too many of those shows as a kid to be an adult I'm like, "Alright, I'm going to fall for this again, right?" I can't. <laughs> so
1: Yeah, I, there's there's that sensational uh sensationalism and then the other big turnoff for me is when the narrator starts in with "Could this possibly be? Could this mean? Is it possible yeah. that" It's like, come on, dude. Anything's or, possible.
0: Or my Let's favorite the is the data. My favorite one is, well, our experts say yes. <laughs> well, your experts <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Who are your experts? That blows me away when they say that. It's like, well, so so experts are watching us and they're they're rendering an opinion? Like <laughs> blows me away, man. Douglas, before we go, is there any cases out there that you worked on that you found to be oddball? Or just what what is the most compelling case you've worked on, I guess I should phrase it better?
1: Oh man, you know. Uh, there are cases, and then there are uh, trips and experiences. Great both out. both are amazing, you know. And I really, anybody listening, if you want to put meaning to your life, find something. I don't care if it's UFOs or if it's you know the the three legged grasshopper of New Guinea. Find something that you can be passionate about. Get up off your couch and go do it, okay? Get out there and do it. These would-be UFO uh, experts who do all of their research from a keyboard and a couch. They make me crazy. You've got to get out there and experience things. But so uh, let's talk about a a case. So I think one of the most intriguing still cases, in this case, uh, I investigated Gosh, it was over 30 years ago now. And this is still one of the cases that keeps me awake nights. Uh, I was living in Missouri at the time, and I was contacted by a sheriff, a, a, a county sheriff, in a not very close by, Kansas County. And he had... Contact me a couple of times. Now, this is back before cell phones, back before computers, and we had to rely on on telephone communication. We call it the Ma Bell system, you know. Uh, you simply made a telephone call and you hoped that someone answered because at this time, I don't think I even had an answering machine to take a message. But I had spoken to this uh, deputy sheriff a few times on the phone, and one evening, and it was probably, you know, early evening, I got a phone call from him, I happened to be home, I happened to answer. And he said, we've got, we've had several UFO sightings in the last two days. He said, is there any chance you can make a run out here? Well, I dropped everything and jumped in my car and took off. It was about a two and a half hour drive from where I lived to this county where he was at. I arrived in this small town, went straight to the police station, and when I got there, I went in, and the one officer on duty in the, in the office, uh, he, I told him who I was, and I told him that the, the deputy sheriff had called me. He got on the radio. He called the gentleman, and the officer showed up within about 10 minutes. I got in his patrol car, and it was probably a 15-minute drive from this small town out into the country where we were headed. And as we're driving, he's relating to me, some of the the reports that he had taken in the last two or three days about a UFO flying around the area. Well, we're driving along, and he says, "In fact," and he points up ahead. He goes, "This farmhouse up here on our left." He said, "I got a call from the lady who lives there just before I got the call that you had arrived in town." He says, "We're not going to stop there." He says, "That's where I was going to take you." He goes, "But." Just as you were coming out of the police station, he said, I got a call. There's been an accident very close to here. We're going to go there first. He says, business is business. I've got to do you know the police thing ahead of the UFO thing. And I'm fine with that. So we drive past this farmhouse that he points out to me. We go about a half mile further down this dirt road, and it intersects with another road. So we've been traveling west, uh, yeah, west. We turn and we head south down this dirt low, dirt road, maybe a quarter of a mile ahead of us, we can see, because by now it's getting dark, and we can see the emergency lights. So we pull up behind, there was an ambulance sitting there, and then in front of it, a patrol car. We pulled up, and we both got out and walked up, and the officer that was on scene tells this deputy that I was with, he says, you know, we got a call that... A passing motorist, somebody had gone down this road, saw this car crashed. And when we walked up to it, it was a sedan and it had nosed into I and mean, in country areas. So this dirt road dead ended there, but then it had a, a right angle turn that went further west. And when they blade these dirt roads out, they end up with a big berm of gravel and dirt at the the dead end. And this car had impacted it at a fairly good rate of speed. Well, when we got there, that was the scenario. They didn't know what had happened, but this car had impacted into this berm of rock and gravel. So the gentleman that I was with, the officer I was with, he says, okay, he says, we're going to go back down the road here, he says, and... I'm taking this gentleman to do an interview with with a uh, local. He goes, and I'll come back. He goes, you know, when I come back, you can tell me what you found about this this crash. Well, instead of going back to the house, that oh, that so I'm forgot to relate a piece. So while we're standing there talking about that, and he says, I'm going to take this guy, meaning me, back to talk to this farm uh, farm wife. The officer says, well you know, farmer so-and-so further down the road down here, he just had a sighting. And it's like, oh, well, didn't know that. It'd come over the radio, apparently. It hadn't been phoned in. So we got in the patrol car and we went to that farm, which was about another mile farther west from where this accident was. We get down there and it's it's a family. It was a farmer, his wife, and two young children. And they're telling us about how they had been eating dinner and one of the children had gone upstairs to get something from a bedroom and had called downstairs and said, there's something over the barn. And they had gotten up from the table, gone to the back of the house, looked up, and they could see this disc hovering over their barn. And unlike the disc I saw, they're telling us that they could see details. They could see structure. They could see a lot of, of stuff, right? They can really describe this UFO very clearly. And they're describing this to us and I'm taking notes. And about that time, uh, the wife gets a phone call. She goes and answers the phone and she comes in and she's, she's seeming a little bit nervous. So her husband asks, you know, what's wrong? And she goes, well, and then she explains they've got a teenage daughter. I think she was 19. And their daughter had left the party. There was a dance in town. She had left the dance with some boy and they were supposed to be coming straight home and they hadn't arrived yet. So, of course, the officer he pulls out his radio and he calls. You know, He's trying to be a, a good officer to these folks that he knows. He calls back to the station house and asks if there's been any news about this girl. Nope. No news about the girl. So, We wrap up there with this UFO investigation, and I promise that I'll come back the next day when it's light, and I was gonna take measurements and photographs. The officer and I go back down the road towards where the accident was. When we get down there, as we're approaching it, he gets a call on the radio that the dispatch officer had called around and found the name of the gentleman that this 19-year-old girl had left the party with. Well, when we get to this car, The officer says, hey, and he walks up to the to the officer on scene and he goes, did you get the identification from the driver? And he goes, yeah. And I don't remember the name. And if I did, I wouldn't say it. But he gives the name and the officer says, oh, man, that's the guy that the people we were just with, their daughter had left a party with. And the officer on scene says, well, there's there's only the one body in the car. And it's like, body? And he goes, yeah, the driver is deceased. And he says, now look at this. And so the officer on scene takes us over to the car, and he's showing us there is, and I don't remember how many, I don't remember how far apart they were, but there was a bunch of holes in in the lid of the trunk through the back window and through the top of this car holes like somebody had been shooting it with buckshot into the car the driver they had all removed him from the seat he was in the uh, ambulance which was going to take him to the coroner's office you could see inside the vehicle there wasn't a whole lot of blood but there's there's blood but you could see where whatever had come through the ceiling of this car and through the back window had penetrated the body and then gone into the dashboard So something had shot this guy in the car. Well, that was all very interesting and and kind of weird at the time. We went back to the station house. I got a local motel room. The next day I went out and I investigated the UFO sighting at the farm. And in the afternoon, I went back to the police station. And the deputy told me, he says, I can't tell you everything. He says, but what I can tell you is we've got that car and it's going to Kansas City where they're going to look at this car. He said, we can't find any bullets. He said, there's there's no projectile that we can find in that car. He said, early assessment of the body is whatever killed him went through and through. So there's no projectiles lodged in his body. He goes, I don't know of, a, of any gun that is that small a caliber, because these were very small holes. He said, that small a caliber that would have enough power to penetrate in every instance and go through and through a body and through a vehicle. He said, so I have no idea what shot this guy. Well, as time went on, and it, it evolved over the, the course of a few weeks, what we found out was the guy who was killed in this car, had taken this 19-year-old girl from a party. The woman who lived in the house that the officer had first pointed out to me, whom I never got around to talking to that lady. I tried a couple of times and couldn't catch her at home. But when she had called, the last time she had called, just before I got up, uh, met up with a police officer, she was describing the UFO was back and it seemed to be following a car. And then moments later, there's a report of this car mysteriously wrecked, and the driver later found to be deceased in the car, connected with this 19 year old girl who to this day has never been found. So, this was a UFO investigation that ended in a missing person report that has never been resolved and a mysterious death, which, to the best of my knowledge, has never been resolved. That's a wild. Freaking UFO case right there.
0: Whoa. I got to say, I mean, everything about that's mysterious. That's, I got to tell you, that's book worthy. You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> it, it was, it was to this day. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that case, thinking about what happened to that girl and her family, of course. You know, God, how did that affect them? I, I, uh, in the course of my lifetime, I had a teenage daughter that went missing. And I had to go down and uh, twice I had to go to a morgue to possibly identify uh, young girls' bodies, hoping it would not be mine. And, and thank God, my daughter years later turned up alive and well. But I know what it feels like to yeah, go to the a stress. Morgue.
0: The stress of that. My oh, God, that's, my, that's it,
1: it's, that taxes it's un- your
0: soul. You know? <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So I know what it is to lose a child. Thankfully, uh, she returned eventually. But I know what it is to lose a child. I know what it is to wonder when you when you get a call. You know, can you come down and and identify this child? But I got to tell you, Adam, the absolute worst feeling. And I've lost I've lost both my parents. Uh, all three of my siblings have passed away. I've lost two children of my own. The worst feeling, the absolute worst thing I've ever experienced in my life was going into a morgue, looking at at a a young girl laying on the slab and going, thank God it's not my daughter. The next heartbeat is the hardest thing ever because that next heartbeat, you're going, yeah, but that is somebody else's daughter. And I was just so elated that it wasn't mine. That feeling is what will kill you. Yeah. That feeling is horrible.
0: Especially, especially with uh, the missing persons thing. Like that's a hole in your soul. That's not, you can't repair that.
1: Yeah. You know,
0: I'm talking to more cops on the podcast, like detectives. I have some more coming on uh, with the intention of speaking about, you know, missing persons and cold cases. And it's not closure. It's, it's peace of mind. You know, closures. I don't, I don't think you ever get it. Peace of yeah. mind is just knowing, but it, it's torture to not know. And I, I could tell you, Douglas, I've lost sleep at night trying to figure out an episode I watched. You know what I mean? I could not imagine a child gone missing; that would drive me crazy. You know, and especially with the the case you're speaking of, man, that's there's mystery involved. The parents for that little girl must be out of beside themselves.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, by now, I suspect that they're well. They they were older than I am, so. Uh, they may have already passed on. But if so, to their dying day, they never knew what happened to their daughter. Yeah. And that's got, I mean, I know what it is to go for years without knowing. If I had to go an entire lifetime, that'd be, that'd be, that's its own kind of hell. Yeah,
0: It's devastating. Cause it, again, it, it comes down to that peace of mind. There's a hole you can't repair. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the spirit of ufology and all we discussed with material and equipment, which is really important, might I add. Um, before we close, one thing I'm going to cover is what, what, do you, what, what are your feelings on, and I don't want to call them abductees. I feel like that's a victim's name. I'm going to call them the experiencers. How much of that are you coming across and what do you feel about it?
1: Well, <laughs> of all the areas of ufology, that has to be the most difficult one for me to really talk to, uh, speak to. And what it comes down to, as I said before, I've gotten to the point in my career, if it it can be called that, that I no longer really feel that I have opinions. Abductees. MUFON gets many, many, many reports of abductees. So many, in fact, that we've got an entire uh, branch called the experiencer research team. That team deals just with abductions. It is it's such a a, uh, a vast group of cases anymore. And my personal feeling is, if if, and I think the last time we spoke, I explained to you the the percentages of cases and solidly 70% of everything that MUFON takes in as a report turns out to have a prosaic explanation. Right. Sometimes more than 70, but it it always swims right around 70%. Then we've got a percentage of hoaxes. We've got a percentage of information only. We've got a a percentage of cases that are insufficient data for a meaningful answer. And we've got some unknowns, but... uh, Abductions, are, I'll, I'll start with the unknown objects. So somebody reports seeing something, and the number of unknowns are very, very small section of, of our cases turn out that way. With abductions, I would say even fewer, in my, in my opinion, in my experience, fewer abduction reports turn out to be true then the percentage of real objects turn out to be unknowns. And yet, abductions make up a very, very large number. So what's going on? I believe, uh, through my experience working with some of these people, a very large percentage of the abduction uh, scenario are people who simply uh, either a... A a biologically induced, and by that I mean our bodies, our bodies are are made up of huge amounts of chemicals. And everything from when we want to have sex to when we want to sleep to when we want to eat, it's all driven by chemical combinations in our bloodstream going to our brain. And I think that when there's a chemical combination that is off enough, I think it causes people to have dreams and we all know that dream states are very unreliable but what i base this on adam is a huge percentage of the abduction scenario anymore that come in start off with i went to bed i don't even know if i ever fell asleep but the next thing i know i'm in this weird room with these weird people doing weird things Well, I think very, 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 very few of those are anything other than a confused state of mind, a dream state. I think a lot of things are, uh, we we have a whole thing in investigations where we consider uh, predisposition. Is someone predisposed to see a UFO case, uh, a UFO? And when we're looking at a case, we always consider that predisposition. I think many, many of the abduction uh, claims are predisposed. People have some kind, you know, they've got a sleep disorder, they've got a drug habit, they, they're chronic alcoholism, or maybe they just are huge readers of UFO books and stories, but they've got a predisposition. And when the chemicals in the mind come together in the right amounts, they are predisposed to interpret these biological, uh, physiological responses as an abduction. Now, that sounds harsh. It sounds like I'm saying that most abductions are not true. And I guess I am. But that still leaves a small grouping of sightings or abductions that probably could be true. And these are the the Betty and Barney Hill experiences. Uh, uh, Jose uh, Villabanova uh, was one that caught me early on. That guy's experiences are insane. Travis Walton, you know, I've known Travis Walton almost, well, I can't say I've known him since the time of his abduction. Within a few years after his abduction, when he was still talking initially, I had gone and listened to Travis Walton speak. Over the years, every opportunity I got, I would go, and I've met him several times. Uh, to this point, I believe that if he arrived in the airport, he would recognize me because he's come to Colorado and spoken for us on a, a few different occasions. But Travis Walton, his story has never changed. Right. What has changed is his interpretation of it.
0: Well, you get to and evolve, right? That like I do. Exactly. You get, exactly. Listen, we his, no one's going to be dead set. Everyone's going to evolve in their thought. And it comes yep. with and, it, and it's it's sad to say it comes with age and wisdom. It just happens. You you, you interpret things differently, but yeah, you continue. And, and that's important
1: in ufology. It's important for an investigator or a would be investigator to understand that if if Travis Walton's if if his opinion of what happened to him, if his if his story hadn't evolved, to me that's a good indication that it would have been bogus.
0: Yeah, because, that's, because you wrote it down and memorized something at that point.
1: Exactly, yeah. you simply memorized it. But I've spoken to Travis about how his his feelings evolved, and early on he was obviously a very angry young man, angry, and he used to say things like. Those blankety-blank little blanks, you know, they destroyed my life. I'd like to kill them. Well, over the years, that has softened a lot. I can tell and you now, why. You know, Douglas, and-
0: listen, I'd be, before you continue that, I have an idea about Travis. Travis Walton, was he, his abduction was his own doing because he did what I would do. I got to see this, right? And I th- personally think by h- him doing exactly what I would do, he ran into a scenario was injured by whatever it was that their field was. And they recognize it's like, um, it's like when you're doing a study in the wild and you're studying animals, right? You're, you're a cameraman. You can't involve yourself in their life. But if you hurt one, you have an obligation, or responsibility to, to heal that animal. In this case, we're being studied by them, et cetera, et cetera. He ran to that site to see what it was. He was injured, but they felt responsible to, to, to fix the problem, which probably our medicine couldn't fix. I, I, that's what I imagine.
1: And that is exactly what he now feels. That is exactly the scenario he put to me the last time Travis Walton and I discussed his, his experience was he said, I think I screwed up. They did not mean for me to be injured. They injured me to an extent where they felt that if they didn't take me and help me, I would die. He said, as soon as they got me to a point where I could survive they dropped me back off and they left. He now believes, uh, initially he thought that, that he was like prey. He thought they grabbed him, they did stuff to him, they terrorized him and then they dumped him. Now he feels like he made a mistake. He was injured by their technology. They took him, they did what they could to help him and then as soon as they could, they released him, if you will. That's his, that's where he is at now. And that progression of thought makes so much sense. Of course, when it first happened, you're afraid, you're scared, your life's been turned upside down, you're going to be angry. That's the human nature. Yeah. But over the years, he's had time to reflect on it, to think about it, to evolve and to understand. And now he feels almost guilty. You know, because of all the time he thought negative negatively about them, now he's feeling some guilt, I think, for having done that, realizing that they probably saved his life. He probably would have died that night had right. they not taken him.
0: He should view it in this light, though. It takes a, a mature, intelligent man to default to logic to recognize a mistake, right? Yeah. Yeah. And by doing so, you're, you're opening a new gateway for you to think differently, allowing you to view everything differently. Um, I commend him for that, you know? Absolutely. Because I did, I, look, I, I purposely, when I first started doing this podcast, or I'm sorry, when I first thought about doing this podcast was probably a year ago this time. I discovered Travis Walton was going to be on Joe Rogan. I purposely didn't watch it, still haven't, because I want to be able to speak to him first before hearing any other perspectives, right? Uh, which eventually I'm going to reach out to him and get him on the show. And, and I really want him to speak freely. And I, I really want him, I, his, hey, look, his story's well documented. But I want him to speak more along the idea of theory, what he, you know, what he believes is going to happen, and allow him to be himself on the show. I want to hear that guy. Um, yeah. I do a lot of off-podcast interviews, as I said. I'd spoken to a lot of people that were experiencers in the, as far as abduction. And I found a pattern. What the people I, and I can't say everyone I've spoken to has had something, I don't know, but the ones I I feel were genuine, I noticed a pattern. They all seem to say that the abduction stopped in and around between 2011 and 2016. I I don't hear a lot of people speaking about current, and then it made me think to myself, why is that happening? And then it it dawned on me. We have phones, computers, ring doorknob stuff, house uh, surveillance you, we, we have everyone that I know so far has a Google in their house, whether it be in their phone or otherwise, or an Alexa, they don't really have to really, uh, outside of them doing a, like maybe a project physically, they don't need to abduct us anymore. Exactly. We made it too easy, right? Um, it would be a dream for us to have like anyone, let's not even say enemies, just anyone at all that we wanted to observe. If they had this technology or house and we could use it against them. Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know. That's right.
0: I mean, right You're now correct. in the room I'm sitting in, if they were watching, and I hope they are, there's plenty of opportunity to watch me without me even knowing. <laughs> you know, so,
1: Absolutely.
0: But I found that pattern, Douglas. I found a lot of them saying between 20 I, – I, I've only heard three of them say that it was current, but those three all fell in line with one thing. Something physical is happening. Something was being altered. The rest of them, when they were in their past experiences, there was nothing invasive happening. It was – more like a meet and greet, or they were just observing them. But now with all our technology, again, like it's, it's too easy for them now, you know? Yeah. So I don't know if you see that pattern or not, but that's, that's what I've gotten in the last four or five months of just taking the interviews on, uh, offline.
1: Well, I haven't thought about it, but it, it certainly makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it certainly does.
0: I felt bad for one young lady. She was really hesitant to speak and she felt, you know, she was going to be shunned. And I felt, I was like, listen, if you and I on a phone call, I'm not going to judge you. I'm never going to judge. I'm never going to be in a position to do so. And she spoke freely. And her, her experiences were so benign, right? It didn't even seem like something bad happened to her. What she did say is that she went to therapy because she could not tell if she was dreaming or awake. And the only times where she realized that something, you know, I guess paranormal, you know, parallel to the normal for her, is that she woke up outside a few times fully dressed? But then you know, sleep. So I don't know. I don't know how to diagnose it, but what I can tell you is there's a pattern emerging.
1: Yeah. Well, of all the hundreds, I've probably I've probably investigated close to a hundred and I've heard uh, had many, many, many more related. I'd guess I've probably sat through listening to in one form or another at least three to four hundred different abduction scenarios. And of all of those, there is probably only four of those stories where I went, I believe that person. I believe that's exactly what they, they had a UFO connected abduction. There's only been four people that I felt that. And I kind of have, you know, over the years, I've developed this, this way of considering all UFO cases, whether it's an abduction, a sighting, or whatever. And what I do is all of the stuff that I've learned, all of the cases I've I've read about or been involved with, there is always a pattern of some type. If a new story that I hear, whether it's an abduction or whatever, if it rings true based on something that I've already heard and decided that I had faith in then it goes into the possibility bin if it has nothing to connect it to that i just i just discard it because there's so many there's so many stories out there so many tales so many books and and it gets to the point to where you can see if if you investigate long enough you start going wow you know this person obviously read that book yeah. and they're just, re- you know, because people either, either consciously or subconsciously, they will copy things. But if there's a, and there's probably, I'm going to just, I'm guessing about two dozen points, data points, I call them. There's about two dozen data points that I have picked up over the years That if one of those data points is in a story, that gets my attention because normally these data points are something that's very meaningful, but very rarely related by other people. So when it does get related, it's like, bing, this is one I need to study. This is one I need to really pay attention to and investigate because this one. It resonates with all of these others that I've already decided I have faith in. So
0: it's that uh, rule out phase. It's exactly that, you know, speaking to Paris, the parapsychologist Dylan Jones, um, he said something on that show that I'm, I, I kind of like now, can I take this to court? You know what I mean? Is this going to hold up in court? An example uh, for me, here's another person, Bob Lazar. Uh, At first I wasn't really interested in speaking to him because his, you know, it's, I don't want to play a broken record, but in, in say me saying that, I realized, you know no one's ever spoke to this guy about what he thinks, what he what his theories are, what his opinions. They're always making him re- you know go over what happened. Well, I, I if I ever get the opportunity to get him on a show, it's not going to speak about his past. I'll, I, he could reference his past all he'd like because that's you know there's that's the only way he can make a theory is by reference, right? But I want he's another one. I want to hear his theories, his thoughts, what he you know what he believes moving forward. But if you look at his what not even claims. If you look at his accounts from back in like the nineties and how he described things. And then you watch that gimbal video on uh from the, the, U, the UFO from the, the military. God, that's spot on. Yeah, it's spot on. This is 30 here or, you know, 20 plus years later. And it's two to the T exactly what he was saying in those early interviews, how it behaved in the early interviews. He discussed that the, that the would belly would face the direction it would go in. And you yeah. watch that video, and, and you hear the uh, the pilot say, "Well, it's 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 rotating." I, you know, it's how did I don't know how the entire planet didn't watch that video and then recall things that Bob Lazar said in the nineties and not say, "I don't give a shit if like the big percentage of the, everything he said to people like, oh, that's nonsense." But you take that one thing psh, indisputable. Like, how else would he have known that that wasn't a lucky shot in the dark? You know what I mean? Throughout the history of ufology, almost never mentioned. Do you see the belly up scenario? And I can tell you why I think. The majority of sightings, they're not moving to their to their best ability; they're in idle mode, so they don't have to belly up for great speed. But by that thing rotating and doing what it's doing, going against the wind, and then I, if I'm right on this, it you know it disappeared from them,
1: right? Well, we see in those videos, in those military videos that they are giving us, what we're seeing is we're seeing the anomaly in its uh, high performance mode. They're trying to outrun these jet airplanes that are pursuing them. So, of course, that's going to be, uh, you know, that's going to be when they're in high performance mode. And you're absolutely right. Most of the time when people see a UFO, I don't think it's in a high performance mode. Like you said, it's kind of, it's either station keeping, you know, maybe it's hovering, or it's very slowly prowling along in search of something. Right. So that's the difference, you know, and people need to take that into consideration when they watch these videos because I've, I've heard the same thing. I've heard people say, oh, you can tell those videos can't be of UFOs because, and it's like, you know, you obviously don't know a, a fraction of what you think you know about UFOs if you make that statement because I'm with you. Those, those videos are showing us and I do believe uh, it's showing us UFOs in high performance mode. So. yeah,
0: I mean, here's the other thing too. people. I hear people say, well, why, why do they have lights on them? Aren't they supposed to be hiding? Like, do you understand yeah. that these objects are yeah. defying physics and doing things in our atmosphere, otherwise unknown? Who knows what energy that's developing? You know, so. Well, here, here's the
1: thing about lights on UFOs. And this is this is just my experience talking, because, as I said earlier, I'm certainly no expert, but. 45-plus 40, years of experience, uh, having investigated well over 500 cases myself. And when I say that, I don't mean a quick glance. I mean in-depth investigations of, of probably almost a 1,000 cases by now. I, I quit taking count years ago. But my experience is, if it's a sighting that I think is likely to be real, there were no red and green flashing lights. Right. These things don't need anti-collision lights. They don't need uh, any of that sort of thing. And it, it cracks me up. Virtually every case that I have to assign to an investigator, and I, as the director, I see just about every case that comes into the U.S., and it cracks me up when the witness will give us a photo or a video, and they say, look at those flashing red and green lights. <laughs> it's like, yeah, isn't it amazing that the UFO, that the aliens actually are considerate enough. When they come here, they put on, you know, standard FAA collision lights just for our benefit. Yeah, and, they they're,
0: sure and they're calling in and making, is runway three open? Or
1: <laughs> Yeah, you know, so considerate. These ETs these days are very, very considerate. You know, generally, lights associated with the UFO tend not to be like a red light bulb or a green light bulb flashing. They tend to be an aura, wow. or like the one that I saw, the first one I saw. You know, it was just this miasmatic effect of red orange light. You know, it's a corona. It, it's probably because, as these things, as I said before, they're electromagnetic in propulsion. As they travel through the atmosphere, they are having a discharge effect. That electromagnetic uh, field that they are, are using is discharging. It's dissipating into our atmosphere. It's, it's coming into contact with ozone in our atmosphere. And so you get these streaks and bands of light, not a, a set of you know, red, blue, green, red, blue, green, blue, green rotating lights. You just don't get that and that's science fiction ufos okay that's your uh classic uh sci-fi b-rate movie from the 60s ufo real ufos virtually never have that type of lighting I, i i can't think of any honestly in my experience i can't think of any that i felt were a genuine unknown that had that
0: kind of lights on it. Yeah, I had a chemist reach out to me and, um on a Facebook group because I, I, some time ago, I put my theory on Facebook. You know, on, on a, a, a group just to get feedback, see what people thought. And, you know, of course, you know, it's it's listen, it's social media. Doesn't matter how good you sound or what you say, you're going to take a beating, right? If you want to, oh, absolutely. You ever want to see the real ugly face of humanity? That's the place to do it on, right? So. <laughs> But this chemist reached out to me, and we had a phone call after. It was really intriguing what he said to me. And he says, I don't, I've don't. never seen UFO. I don't know anything about them. But from a chemistry point of view, if let's hypothetically say something's using that kind of energy. it's Imagine what that energy is doing to the gases surrounding it in our atmosphere. Of course, you're going to see brilliant, brilliant colors and brilliant lights. He goes, I do crazy things with gas and, and flame in my classroom. So when I hear about UFOs, the, the thing that comes to his mind is that this energy is admitting such energy in the atmosphere that the gas around it's reacting to it. Absolutely. And it makes sense. And he goes, yeah, if you want, and if there's different colors of UFOs all over the, all over the globe, he goes, just is it, a, is it in a cold environment, a dry environment? Is it a, in a humid environment? Of course it's going to appear differently. And when he said Absolutely. that to me, I was like, holy shit, this is a chemist who's never seen anything. So <laughs> Yeah.
1: But it's science, you know, and that that's the thing I always come back to is what does the science tell us? If the science is suggesting that it's an unknown, then it's probably going to be an unknown. But yeah. if the science is telling us it's something mundane, that's the direction, you know, and I train, uh, these days, a big part of my, uh, my mission with MUFON is training new investigators. All of the newest investigators, they go through a three night training session with me and, you know that's one of the things i'm always telling them is you've got to follow the science don't get sucked down the rabbit hole with the witness narrative we got a, a something called the witness narrative and i always tell them don't get sucked into the witness narrative that's emotion that's adrenaline talking that's hubris talking follow the science and that's going to lead you to the best disposition for the case.
0: You know, so far from all the MUFON people I've spoken to on the show off show, I think you're in good shape, man. What a diverse group. I mean, they are. I got <laughs> to tell you, if, if our country was diverse like MUFON, we would have very little problems today. Legitimately. You know, I, there's a couple of guys like Dan Spell and Mike Pinicello, who I couple together. I introduce them to each other. I'm going to have on the show reoccurring per monthly. Just speaking about cases, you're welcome to join for that, by the way. But we're gonna have like a monthly thing where we just talk about different cases and their and their thoughts on it. We're gonna begin doing that. you have Margie K, uh, who's with the Unex Network she's created? She's fantastic. She's like a corporate minded individual. She's a go getter. My goodness, I got a, my first email from Margie Kay, I had to like I was, what is a corporate? Like, I, I was shocked. She's really organized. And then you know Stacy Wright, even you know even uh, Joseph Jordan, like every single move on person I'd spoken to, the diversity's there. The the their, their, granted they have their own thoughts and their own experiences which everyone should that's part of being diverse absolutely remarkable group of people un, indisputable so I think you're in good hands and as far as training new ones I think you're I, for you you're definitely you'd belong with the captain hell man there's no doubt and well, that I, I just I just
1: feel like move on if if your listeners really want to understand what's going on. In, in ufology stay off the crazy websites if you want to know what's going on you know if you want to be an investigator we've got we can train just about anyone to be a good investigator we do all of the training so and i've, I've got everything from college professors and uh retired uh, homicide detectives
0: yeah Bruno.
1: yeah to ju- to to housewives and uh, Sunday school teachers, these folks. It doesn't matter what your background is, if you've got the ability to pay attention, to separate your own beliefs from those of the witness, so that you can take a really good uh, uh, account of what they say that they saw. And if you've got an open mind and a desire to know, anybody can be a UFO investigator for MUFON. And the thing is. The thing that I am so proud about, MUFON, is it's just what you said, so diverse and such, I mean, come on, with the minds that are that are looking into this stuff, how can we not move forward? How can we not? I'm not saying we're gonna solve this tomorrow or next year or even in the next decade, but how can we not move forward with this diverse a group of minds? all applying themselves to the same question. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. It's such an amazing thing.
0: It's it's my philosophy on life or at least my belief system. If you want a religion, humanity. If you if yeah. you want a race, human. If you want a place of origin, Earth. We get all that I mean that makes the most sense to me. You know what I mean? You know like yeah. you have Dennis Wilson and uh and and Denise Stoner, right? What a dynamic yeah. couple! She's an experiencer, he's yeah. an investigator, and you can't it doesn't get better than that. You they balance one another, you know. I mean, I I've met some pretty incredible people. Thomas Wortman, if you've that guy should narrate oh. documentaries. My God, yes,
1: yes, he should.
0: I had him on the show twice. Every time he talks, he gets me. I get so I I can listen to him for hours, and I you know what I mean? Like he's got an interesting perspective. He, he has the right levels in his voice, but he's a, an intelligent person, and he thinks from outside the box. So as far as MUFON with investigating, I think you guys got it, man. You got a good, you got a good diverse group. They're very sincere. They're very genuine. Every last one of them. Yeah. And, you know, and especially you in your position, look, I appreciate having you on and speaking to you. In fact, I don't, I'm going to have you on plenty more in the future. I know that to a certainty.
1: Well, I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, your show. I enjoy your attitude. Uh, but I got to tell you, it's a treat for me. Uh, because each time that we've talked now, you know, you've, you've taken some time to sing the praises of the MUFON investigators. And these people are, they're like family to me. I, I think the world of them. I, I know most of them, uh, at least to some extent or another. And it's a treat for me to be able to hear these, these names. And, and I can put a face to every one of them. And it's like, wow, how cool to sit here and listen to someone who has spoken to so many of these, these highly intelligent folks. And, you know, you sing their praises and it makes me feel like, yep, that's why I'm in MUFON. Yeah, Those I mean, people are why I'm in
0: MUFON. You should be proud. There's more coming. I am. I'm built. See, I mean, at the end of the day, Douglas, I'm building a network. So when I start doing more shows and I'm doing a documentary, I have a good group of people to reach out to. When, if I'm in your area, and I'm investigating. That's what I want to be able to do. Yep. And yeah, you should be proud. You got a really diverse, really great group, well-rounded. And I, you know, I applaud you guys. I really do. I enjoy talking. To you. I look forward to speaking to more. It's, it's, I haven't had a bad experience yet. And it, like, I got to tell you every different perspective from every different member all works out because it's, it's, it's like I say, there's no bad information. You just got to know how to filter, right? All information is good, it. you know, and yeah, doesn't get better than that. Douglas, I had a great time with you, man. I really enjoyed our conversation. I enjoyed it as well. Uh, we'll definitely speak in the future. One last time, uh, the, 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 Midar, the, guy and the website. It's
1: MADAR, M-A-D-A-R. Madar. Uh, it's new fork N U F O R C. And the gentleman's name is Fran Ridge, F R A N R I D G E. He's a wonderful man. Uh, and you'll be helping. You'll, you'll be helping the greater cause of ufology if you get involved with Fram.
0: Perfect. I'm going to do it. Douglas, I had a great night. We'll talk soon, sir.
1: All right. Thank you. Take care. You too.